If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea and turn to chapter 9, which is where we're going to start or pick up from in just a moment. Let's uh, bow our hearts again and just pray as we come before God's Word together. Heavenly Father, as we just spend this time now just studying your Word, Lord, speak to us, we pray, through your Spirit. Lord, as though we are looking at historical prophecies of things that have taken place, Lord, we recognize that in all things there is instruction and there is learning for us, Lord. That's why you've given us these things in your word. So, Lord, help us to see this morning what you are saying to each one of us individually. And, Lord, lead us, Lord, and uh, just turn us away from the things of this world and turn us unto Jesus, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hosea, just this incredible character called by the Lord to take a wife who was effectively a prostitute, to love her, to ultimately to go and purchase her after she'd left him and gone off into her life of so-called pleasure and then lost everything and effectively become a slave. And then just as God rescued us, and purchased us when we were far from him. So Hosea goes and purchases his own wife back. Just incredible account. And then that takes us up to chapter 3 of the book, and then really from chapter 4 onwards, this is the section we're in at the moment, we see the controversy that God has with his people, the problem that God had with the northern kingdom of Israel, and to a say a lesser degree, but... In some senses, in the regard of Hosea, it was to a lesser degree with Judah. Judah would get um, its judgment from God. Uh, And Jeremiah and other prophets speak very much to the southern kingdom. But Hosea's ministry from God was to the northern kingdom. It's in that period of time leading up to 722 BC, important date historically. That's when the Assyrian army finally came down and conquered the northern kingdom, and took the people away captive back to Assyria. Took them away from their land, took them away from everything they'd known, and uh, and so on. It's where the Samaritans come from, because as a result of the people of the land being taken out, the land of Israel became overrun with lions. Um, interestingly enough, if you go to the British Museum, and you'll find there uh, loads of reliefs on the wall, carvings on the wall there, that they brought back from Assyria, from the various palaces there, which show these lion hunts, as they uh, they refer to it. In the British Museum, there's a little plaque that says that, you know, the lion hunting was the pastime of kings and so on. And yet you look at these reliefs, and it looks like they weren't just hunting lions. They, it was pest control. Many of the, the reliefs show lions attacking them. Clearly there was a problem. Uh, and it's exactly that, that period of history where uh, Israel had been taken out of the land, the land becomes overrun, and we'll see allusion to this, not the lions, but the land being overrun uh, in the verses we'll look at this morning. As a result of that, king of Assyria looked for a priest who they could send back to the land who would be able to teach the people that Assyria had now moved into the land, so not natural inhabitants, not Jews, uh, but teach them the customs of the land. And so these people that had been moved in by the king of Assyria in the area of Samaria, become known as the Samaritans. So that's where the Samaritans come from. And that's why the Jews didn't like them. Because as far as they were concerned, they weren't real Jews. Uh, Although they'd been taught about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, they weren't descendants of. And so 
And that's where that all kicks off, really. But we are in that period of time leading up to Israel being taken out of the land. And God is going through in chapters 4 through 10, and we'll try and deal with 9 and 10 uh, to finish off this section this morning, um, all that God was saying to them. Now, to break that down a little more, in chapter 9 through 10, really, is again, the captivity is now going to be laid out. So Israel had been given the land. They moved into the land. Joshua, of course, had been the one that uh, the Lord had appointed to move them in to get rid of the inhabitants of the land because of the iniquity of those that were dwelling in the land at the time. And also, God, it was God's land, and you know, um, the nations that were there weren't really the rightful inhabitants. Um, it surprises people to find out that actually been godly kings in Jerusalem for a period of about a thousand years. Melchizedek was one of those kings. Um, prior to the likes of the Jebusites and um, all the other nations that had inhabited the land. And so Israel basically just come to remove those and to claim the land back for God. But God had warned them, and you read in uh, books like Deuteronomy particularly, that God had said that if they weren't obedient, just as God had removed those nations, that God would also therefore remove Israel. And that's what we're going to see Hosea prophesying to the nation uh, in these chapters. And it's a result of their iniquity. It goes on, uh, the last few chapters from this point, really starts to be God's grace, God's mercy shining through as God, even though this people are going to be cast out of the land because of their sin, God is a loving and gracious God. And we read of how God will restore them and bring them back, and how they ultimately will enjoy blessing. That is yet to come. That's still even future for us now. Israel will, there are many of them back in the land. Many are going back even uh, as we speak. Every day, more Jews are returning to the land. But they haven't yet turned to God. Um, and they haven't yet accepted the Messiah. That's all coming. So in chapter 9 and 10, again, we're going to see the captivity is going to come because of corruption. The first nine verses deal with that. And then... Israel, who had been fruitful, as God had moved them into the land, it was supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey. The idea of milk and honey, of course, milk comes from cattle. That means there's cattle. If there's cattle, there's pasture land, there's grass, and so on growing. And the honey, of course, bees, which obviously means flowers. And the whole idea was it's a real fruitful land. This was what God was giving them. And Israel themselves had been fruitful. They'd multiplied as a, as a people. But God is going to say, that's all going to be undone. The people that were once fruitful are going to become unfruitful. And then chapter 10, really, there's, there's about eight or nine discourses as we go through this. Um, this is the eighth discourse that Hosea gives. And really, uh, its subtitle could be Repent or Perish. It, it really is now. This is the, the, the line is finally drawn. Uh, and God makes it very clear that this judgment is going to be pronounced because of the sins and they're enumerated in the first four verses again, uh, that Assyria is coming. They're going to destroy not only the kings, but the idols. God is going to even take away this false security they've had in worshipping these gods. Interestingly enough, one of the gods they were worshipping was this god Baal. Um, and Baal was supposed to be a, a god that blessed them with fertility. And so they were turning to this idol, and God is saying, well, I'm going to take away that fertility, and we'll see that uh, in the verses as we go through. And God will highlight that Israel had been disobedient, had sinned right from the beginning, and we'll see allusions to that. And then finally, God will plead with them to break up the fallow ground, uh, to the, all the, the hardest in their hearts, uh, and to sow righteousness. So 
Let's jump into chapter 9. We'll go through verse by verse. So God says to the nation, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy, as other people. For thou hast gone a whoring from thy God. Thou hast loved a reward upon every cornfield. Okay, speaking of the produce, speaking about that which they'd uh, managed to uh, to grow and so on. Uh, they're in this seemingly prosperous situation, and yet God is saying, no, you're not, because you're spiritually bankrupt. And he says, don't rejoice. Don't rejoice as other people do. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says this, the prophet seems to come across the people in the midst of their festivity and mirth and arrest them abruptly, stopping it, telling them that had no, telling them, telling them that had no cause for joy. You know, you can imagine the situation that they are celebrating one of their feasts of of Baal. And this prophet walks in and stops it in the midst. You you can imagine how unpopular Hosea was in this situation. But, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, how people scoff at the prospect of divine judgment. They were rejoicing, they were celebrating. They'd, They'd heard Hosea speak already. They'd heard other prophets tell them that judgment was coming. But it's so easy just to say, I don't believe that, that's nonsense. That's what the world does today. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. There were celebrations going on. Everything was going on as normal. No doubt they were still having parties and celebrating and so on. But notice, it's until the day that Noah entered the ark. Those untils, always important. Suddenly there was a little look over the shoulder. This man had been building this boat for 120 years. And Noah goes in and the door is miraculously closed behind him. And there's this kind of eerie silence because... Even the animals, no doubt, that hadn't got onto the ark were starting to scurry and flee away, going for high ground. You know what it's like when a, when a storm's coming. There's a change in the, the atmosphere. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and so on until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away and so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, judgment had been foretold, had been preached on by Noah. Uh, by Noah. In fact, he'd been preached on for a number of generations to this point. Even Methuselah, his very name means when he dies, it shall come. He was, his, his whole life was a prophecy that God was going to bring judgment. You know, people laughed and scoffed then. Of course, they laughed and they scoffed at the thought that Jesus is coming back and is going to establish his kingdom on this earth. In fact, in Second Peter, we read this, knowing this verse that there shall come in the last days, as the days we are in right now, scoffers walking after their own lusts, just living however they want to, for their own pleasures, disregarding God and saying, where is the promise of his coming? I don't see it. You know, I don't see God. I don't see anything in the sky. And they mock. And they say, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, in the mid-1800s, of course, we have people who step onto the world scene, like Lyle and Huxley and... Charles Darwin and others, that propagate this idea that actually the world as we see it isn't the result of cataclysmic events like the flood of Noah and other great events that have happened in the past, but it was long, slow, gradual things, and actually the earth is much, much, much older. And of course, one of the 
key motivating factors for them was to try and get people away from the Bible. And they openly said it. And now we've got a society that has fallen for this nonsense. Every week or two on BBC, you get some other piece of evolutionary propaganda telling us they've discovered this or they found this. Or, you know, the interesting thing is, if any one of the pieces of so-called evidence they tell you about were, were valid, they wouldn't need to keep coming up with new things to try and convince people. But no, people like to scoff and mock at the idea of judgment. They think it's not coming. And Israel were no different. Again, God is saying to them, don't rejoice, don't celebrate, and don't be like, notice this contrast, other people. See, there's a contrast that God specifically draws here between Israel and the world. Why? Because Israel were God's chosen people. Well, this is interesting. This is actually from uh, John Calvin's commentary. He said this, The comparison here made is also of great weight. As other people, says the prophet, he means that though God might pardon heathen nations, he, uh, yet he would punish Israel. For less excusable was his apostasy and rebellion in having committed fornication against his God. That other nations wandered in their errors was no wonder. But that Israel should have thus cast off the yoke and then denied his God, that he should have broken and violated the fidelity of sacred marriage. All this was quite monstrous. It is then no wonder that God here declares by the mouth of his prophet that though he spared other people, he would yet inflict just punishment on Israel. You know, we can draw a lesson from this because God does expect something from us as Christians. We shouldn't be like the people of the world. Israel here, compared with the world, and told they shouldn't be like the people of the world. They're going to be judged differently. God expects a different standard of them. In the book of Hebrews, we read this. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the holy covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done despite unto the spirit of grace. Now, I'm not going to get into the issue of predestination and free will and election and all those kind of things this morning. We've talked about those things in the past. But we make a grave mistake if we think that we are saved and that's it now. It's all done. We don't have to worry and we can live how we want. I don't think you find that teaching in the Bible. There is an expectation on us as to how we should live as Christians. We can't just water it all down now and think that it doesn't matter how we live. Now, that's not to imply for a second that our salvation is based upon works. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. But if we don't think God won't punish us if we live in open rebellion, then I think we are very much mistaken. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, it says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke, that's working for someone else, count their own masters worthy of all honor. You know, so if you're an employee working for someone, 
then you should count your boss or you should treat your boss with respect, whether they deserve it or not. And this is the reason, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. What it's saying is people are going to look at you as a believer. And rightly or wrongly, they will judge your God based upon how you live. Do you know the commandments tell us that we should not take the name of God in vain? A lot of people think it's about vocabulary, about blaspheming, swearing, so on. I don't think it's about that. I, I go along with what Chuck Liz used to say. I think it's about ambassadorship. Don't take the name of God upon you if you're not prepared to represent him. Don't take the name of God in vain. If you call yourself a Christian, then stand up and let people see that you follow Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or need we as some other uh, epistles of comment, uh, some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And then he says this, ye are our epistle written in our hearts. And it's the last few words here, known and read of all men. Paul told the Corinthian believers, people will look at your lives. They will read you like an epistle. They will get to know God by looking at you, by looking at your life. That's why it is important how we conduct ourselves, what we say, how we react, how we respond, even in traffic. When somebody cuts us up in the supermarket and goes to grab that last item on the shelf that you were after, do you know, we often say, you know, that, well, we know that God's in control of all things, and all things work together for good, and yet you get in that kind of scenario, and it's the last item on the shelf, and you know, somebody else gets it. You know, and we, we tend to just disengage that kind of Christian mindset at that point. But, you know, God's got a plan in all things. All things. You know, it's amazing how when we learn to trust God and wait on him, we are daily surprised at his provision his leading, the way he does things to answer conundrums and questions in our hearts and minds in ways that we had never anticipated. That's why we should live that life of faith, and it should be a life that others see. And we shouldn't hide our light under a bushel. We should be proud. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. Once again, God says to Israel, that he's not going to judge them like he's going to judge the world. You know, we're told in Peter that judgment begins with the house of God. The season of judgment that's coming is going to begin with the church. I think that's very interesting. We did a series on it some time ago, but I think it's a fascinating thought that God is going to start this time of judgment that's coming by judging the church. We can talk about that maybe in some more depth some other time. There are some studies online, The Coming Judgment of the Church. There's the title there if you want to go and listen to them. Verse 2, doing well, aren't we? The floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. So all the things they thought they were producing and they thought they were okay, Hosea is saying, no, no, it's all going to fail. You're not going to have any of this stuff. You're only taken away and you won't have any of this. Then they shall not dwell in the Lord's land. God is very clearly saying, Hosea is saying to the people, you're going to be taken out of this land. And notice this, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Interesting that 
they were defiling themselves in all sorts of ways because of their morality. And God says, okay, well, you're going to be forced to eat unclean things. And suddenly you can more imagine the, the horror amongst the people. Well, we wouldn't do that. That's wrong. Well, what about your lifestyles? People like to apply the parts of religion that suits their own kind of lifestyle. They like to have their own standard and make other people follow that. Uh, it's really saying here that Israel's time of unfaithfulness really was up. You know, and that which she thought she had would soon be gone. And this reference to Egypt and Assyria, where they would certainly consume the northern kingdom before very long. And the majority of the people went to Assyria, it's true. And in type here, that becomes like Egypt, because Egypt, of course, represents that place of bondage and slavery. But not only in type is Egypt mentioned, but also in reality, because you find that some of those up north, no doubt, were not specifically told the details, but you, can, you know that when Assyria moved in, some of them would have fled down south to escape. And then later we find, and Jeremiah tells us, that the time that Nebuchadnezzar would come, some 100 years later on the southern kingdom on Judah, many of them did go back down to Egypt. Adam Clark makes this comment. He says, many of them did return to Egypt after the conquest of Israel by Shalmaneser, that's the Assyrian king, and, and, after, sorry, and many after the ruin of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. But they had, in effect, returned to Egypt by setting up the worship of the golden calves, which were in imitation of the Egyptian Apis. You know the Egyptian Apis bull? You may have seen it on those kind of hieroglyphics and the, the pictures of Egypt. You know, that bull that typically is drawn. That was the Apis bull. That was what they worshipped in Egypt. Of course, no surprise that when they get to Mount Sinai and Moses goes missing for 40 odd days that they decide they're going to build something. It happens to be this bull. That's what the Egyptians have worshipped. That's what they did. And what is it that Jeroboam does when the kingdom divides? He makes two of these bulls out of gold. One is in Dan and one's in Bethel. And it's interesting, I like what Adam Clark says, because he's saying that, you know, yes, they were going to be taken back to Egypt, but actually they'd already gone. The moment they'd given their hearts over to this idolatry, they'd gone. It kind of goes back to the whole Garden of Eden thing, you know, I said before. You know, at what point did Eve sin? You know, was it when she bit into the fruit? It wasn't an apple, just again, just to clarify, it wasn't an apple. We still have apples, so it couldn't have been an apple, so some other fruit, we don't know what. Was it when she bit into the fruit? Was it when she kind of plucked it off the tree? Or was it when in her heart she decided to reach out and take it? You see, Jesus tells us that the sin is actually within our hearts. You know, really, the rest of it is just the outworking. The moment Eve sinned was the moment she looked at that fruit and lusted for it. To place in the heart before any other physical things that happened. It's the same with Israel here. They'd already given themselves over to idolatry. What happens over the coming centuries was just the outworking of that. Albert Barnes says this, God had commanded them to return no more to Egypt, that's from Deuteronomy 17, 16, of their own mind. But he had threatened that on their disobedience, the Lord would bring them back to Egypt by the way whereof he spoke unto them, thou shalt see it no more again, Deuteronomy 28, 68. 
Hosea also foretells to them that they, i.e. many of them, should go to Egypt and perish there. And we'll see those verses come out in a moment. Now, of course, Egypt, as we said, represents slavery and bondage of sin. And God had taken them out of Egypt and warned them never to return there. And those calves that had been set up at Dan and Bethel show their hearts had returned to slavery and bondage already. And now they would physically follow, first by making alliances to deliver them from Assyria, and then finally by being taken captive. And predominantly, as we said already, applied to those in Judah that went down to Egypt, and yet some from the north would have moved as well to escape judgment. And Jeremiah 42, 43 confirmed that. But I thought this was really interesting as I was reading this and going through it, studying Because it's in the depths of despair that God meets us. I'm going to read to you briefly from Psalm 40. I'm sure it's a psalm you're very familiar with. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my guides. You see, it's when we're in that state of despair that God comes, reaches out to us, and lifts us out. But God comes and meets us, as it were, in that pit. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus came as a man. He came to meet us where we were, and to provide a way of escape. And I thought it was fascinating because I'm sure you know the scripture. It's quoted in Matthew in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, in Hosea 11:1, 1, which we'll maybe get to, Lord willing, next week, we read, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. You know, I'd often wondered why, of all the places, given the fact that God had said in Deuteronomy that Israel should not return to Egypt, Why it was that God allowed his own son to go to Egypt. I understand the mechanics. Of course, Herod was trying to kill Jesus. And so they had to go to a place that was safe. And at that time, Egypt was one of the places that was kind of not really under Roman control. So I I kind of get the, the reason. And yet of all places, you think, well, why, if God says don't return that way, don't go back there, would Jesus go there? Well, the reason Jesus goes there is because of this type. That Israel, because of their iniquity, end up going back to Egypt, back to the place of slavery and bondage. Where does Jesus go? To the place of slavery and bondage. Why? To deliver us when we are in that horrible pit. The, The type, I think, is incredible. It just speaks of the way that Jesus went to that place of slavery and bondage and purchased our freedom. We'll explore that a little bit more when we get to chapter 11. But the whole of this really is the story of Hosea. Hosea went to rescue his bride when she was at the lowest possible place, when she had nothing left. And he comes and purchases her and forgives her and brings her home and clothes her and provides for her. It's a great account of the gospel. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Now, do you remember they've been going through the religious practices? They've still been doing their feasts, the, the Jewish feasts. They've been doing the religious stuff, but their heart wasn't in it. And God says, well, okay, you're not going to be able to do it anymore. I'm not going to let you just go through the motions and pretend it's true because you don't believe it. You're not sacrificing to me. 
This is the sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners, i.e., if those who are mourning would touch bread, it becomes defiled and so on. And it's saying whatever they're eating would be as if it were undefiled, be as if it was defiled, so they couldn't use it for celebration. And all that eat thereof shall be polluted for their bread, for their souls shall not come into the house of the Lord. They're not even going to be able to come into the temple. They're not going to be able to go to the places of worship. They're going to be removed from this. Even the comfort that their religious practices were giving them is going to be taken away from them. Verse 5, what will you do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. The pleasant places for their silver, nettles shall possess them. Thorns shall be their tabernacles. Verse 5 again, saying, it seems to be saying, what will you do in the solemn day? What day? The feast days. And specifically, it seems to be alluding to the Feast of Tabernacles. What are you going to do? You won't have the opportunity. You'll be taken out of your hand. You won't be able to celebrate these things anymore. You know, that old adage is, I think, true to some degree. that You don't know what you've got until it's gone. And God was taking away the comfort that Israel had in thinking that they still had some sort of religious life. God was going to strip them of all those things. Yeah, this is very much analogous in the, the New Testament. In Corinthians, Paul speaks of this individual that's involved in this immoral relationship. And he says, hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, let them have at it. Let them go and, and take their full of the world because they will soon realize how empty it will leave them. And God is saying, I'm going to take away all these comforts that you think you've got. The idea here again, uh, Egypt shall gather them up, and Memphis shall bury them. Memphis is just the, the place in Egypt, once the kind of the capital, where the Apis Bull was worshipped more than any other place. It's interesting that they're going to be taken to this place, and that's where they're going to die. And no doubt some of them did indeed end up going back there and dying in that place. It was a place that was renowned for burial, particularly for the, for the Egyptians. But Israel are going to go back to the place that as a nation they've been delivered from and die there because of their sin. Such a tragic situation. And then it speaks then of the pleasant places. Adam Clark says this, The fine estates or villas which they purchased by their money, now being neglected and uninhabited, are covered with nettles. And even their tabernacles, thorns and brambles of different kinds grow. These are the fullest marks of utter desolation. Just the idea that the land is going to be devoid of these people, and it's just going to grow into this barren wilderness and so on. The days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. And then it says, the prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and thy great hatred. Now, the idea seems to be here, not that he's speaking of Hosea, but the false prophets that have been prophesying peace and prosperity and well, the Lord won't allow those things. We are his people and he wouldn't allow judgment to come on us. 
The idea is, you know, who's pretended to foretell? That's the idea that the prophets, uh, on divine authority, peace and plenty, for behold, all is desolation. That seems to be the idea behind it. The spiritual man in reference here, uh, the, the Hebrew word is hurak. It's the same word or the same root we get from spirit to breath. The, the man of spirit who was ever pretending to be under divine inspiration. You know, Israel was full of these religious people that would speak on behalf of God and tell you what God thought and God, you know, God was going to do. They weren't speaking God's word. They were speaking of their own inventions. And then the idea is mad. You know, he's enraged to see everything falling out and happening contrary to his prediction. They made all these promises to the people about what was going to happen, these so-called prophecies, and none of them were coming true. God had already given very clear instruction about false prophets. So these individuals now are being shown to be false. They say, the watchman of Ephraim was with my God. Now that, I believe, is a reference to the true prophets, those that were faithful. The idea of was with my God, was faithful to God. God had called his prophets to be watchmen, to watch and to sound the alarm. That's exactly what Hosea was doing. Then, in contrast to that, maybe it's not as easy to see in the English, but the commentators seem to be pretty much agreed on this, that there's a direct contrast between those that are faithful, the watchmen, the real prophets, and then the false prophets. The prophet is a, is a snare of a fowler in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. Again, so the false prophet has continued deceiving the people, leading them into snares, and infusing into their hearts deep hatred against God and his worship. Then he goes on and says, They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore he will remember their iniquity, he will visit their sins. Now that's a reference, you may be familiar, to Judges 19, verse 16. And it's this horrific rape and murder of this Levite's concubine. If you really want to read it, then go read it. I mean, it's God's word, read it, because it's, it's, it just speaks of the lowest point kind of in Israel's history. And it's kind of marked as such, the, the darkest, the worst moment. I mean, it speaks in that portion of being, it, there was nothing before it that was as bad and nothing afterwards would be as bad. But this is now being compared to it, saying it's as bad. And now we're in this situation but notice always God is just in bringing judgment. It's very easy to lose sight of it and think that, you know, I've heard so many people who don't understand Scripture make comments about God being tyrannical and a bully and so on, the God of the Old Testament and full of wrath. Well, you've got to understand what was going on. You've got to understand what the people were doing and the iniquity. You know, you can't read that situation in Judges 19.16 without emotion. It's one that you get really quite cross and agitated and, you know, you want judgment to be done. It's a horrible situation. And God is saying Israel were in the same position. God is just in bringing judgment. The last part of this chapter, chapter 9, speaks about Israel who had been fruitful becoming unfruitful. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separate themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. There's a kind of a, almost an allusion back here to when they were journeying toward the promised land. And you remember the situation with Balaam and Balak and so on. And um, Balaam counsels King Balak to go and get all the pretty Moabite girls, get them to stand near the Israeli young man. And of course, the Israeli men fell into a 
uh, immorality as a result of it. And God brought judgment upon the nation. And it kind of carried on these things that never got rooted out of their hearts. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. And, and notice the, 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 the chain or the, the flow here. It's speaking about their glory flying away swiftly. I mean, <laughs> we went down to, to Kent last week and we were on the beach and uh, throwing stones in the water and so on. And, and one of the funniest things was watching Shireya trying to chase the seagulls. And of course, every time she gets close, they were flying away. It was even funnier watching Marla and Joy trying to do the same thing a little bit later. But, that, that was like, but you know, they fly away so quickly you can't catch them. But then notice what it says. From the birth, and from the womb, and from the conception. It's going backwards, isn't it? And the idea is that the, their glory was, was getting back. God has told that this nation that had been fruitful, first of all, they're not going to, well, in fact, let's go the other way. It's saying that they're not even going to conceive. That those who were in the room would be miscarried and those that were born would be killed. As a result of what was coming. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them. That there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. Abba Barnes says this, When man parts with the substance, his true honor, God takes away the shadow. Lest he should content himself therewith and not see his shame, and boasting himself to be something, abide in his nothingness and poverty and shame to which he had reduced himself. You see, it's hard to see this, but in actual fact, this is all God's grace still being played out. By God stripping them of all of these things. It was a wake-up call. If God had left them in this situation, they could have carried on indefinitely and ultimately been lost. Ephraim, as I saw, Tyrus is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord, what will thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Let me give you the Living Bible paraphrase of this, because I think it's helpful. It says, in my vision, I've seen the sons of Israel doomed. The fathers are forced to lead their sons to slaughter. O Lord, what shall I ask for your people? I will ask for wounds that don't give birth, for breasts that cannot nourish. The idea is, Lord, let's just stop producing children because all that's going to happen is they're going to go into judgment. They're going to be killed by these invading armies that are coming. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Strong words, but you see, Gilgal is that place where Israel rejected God as their king and where they wanted a king to rule over them. It's where Saul was effectively chosen, appointed. That's where it all took place. For there I hated them, for the wickedness they're doing is I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters or rebellious is the idea. Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him. And there shall be wanderers among the nations. And this is another staggering prophecy, and no pun intended in that. But 
it speaks of Israel's future, that they will be wanderers among the nations. It's exactly what's happened for the last 2,000 plus years. The wandering Jew has roamed the world. And that expression, cast out, we find that in the Old Testament a number of times, but typically God used it in reference to the inhabitants of the land that Israel were to cast out. And now God is saying, you are going to be cast out. You see the contrast that's drawn here between God's people and the world, how God's people should be different. 15 verses of chapter 10, we'll just go through this. As I said already, this is just this kind of repent or perish. And he's going to begin with talk of a vine. But I need to just give you a very quick background of this. There are three vines that are spoken of in Scripture. Let's just go to Revelation first of all. In Revelation chapter 14, we read this. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth. Okay, so that's one of our vines. And cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the right winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Okay, this vine of the earth. All right, we'll come back to explain in a second. Noah had left the ark with his three sons, and of course their wives, to build this new world. God's sovereignty and majesty were uncontested at that point. But Satan moved once again in an attempt to thwart God's plan of redemption. That's what the Genesis 6 thing had all been about. Satan trying to stop God's plan of redemption. Who was Satan's man of the hour, as it were? It was Cush, Noah's grandson. Cush led a rebellion that led to the building of the Tower of Babel. His son who you and I would know as Nimrod, but also known as Bacchus or Bar Cush. You get the idea in Hebrew, Bar means son of, son of Cush. Bacchus, which is the, the, the Roman god. All these derive from these things. Ends up becoming the first world leader, first world dictator. In that sense, he's a type of antichrist. And begins this whole Babylonian vine, if you like, the vine of the earth. It's the source of all false religion. All false religion can be traced back to Babylon. Again, it began with Cush, the founder of Babel, also known as Hermes, the son of Ham. All these expressions, so many, um, you know, the Roman gods, the mythology, Greek gods, mythology, all of those names are drawn out of these individuals. Ham, or, or Cush is also known as the confounder. Janus in some uh, cultures. You get the idea, um, uh, the whole Janus and the hammer and those kind of things. Because it breaks in pieces. And that's exactly what happened with the Tower of Babel. And because of Cush, the whole situation, there was the confounder. The world became confounded. It spoke different languages. So again, Nimrod, building on that which Cush had done, starts to separate, uh, starts to set up these false, or, or from him come these false religions. And it's propagated by his wife, Semiramis. We've gone through some of these things in the past. Some of you will be familiar. And of course, it promised a way to spiritual security. But it leads to destruction. And we just saw in Revelation, ultimately, the cup of the wrath of God. That's the vine of the earth. It's the vine of false deception. or It's a vine of deception or false religion. Leading people away from God. 
course, the penalty for adultery was stoning. It's interesting, that's one of the methods that God will use during the tribulation. Now, another vine, the one that we're looking at in Hosea, is being referenced, we'll look at in a second, is Israel. See, Israel was to be a witness to the nations, testifying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through this vine, the nations were to come to the knowledge and fear of the one true God. But Israel, through disobedience, became a degenerate plant, and thus a byword and a proverb. And rather than being a witness, they brought God's name into disrepute. However, the Jewish religious leaders still thought that they were the only way to God. This was another vine that didn't lead where it should have done. The vine of the earth leads people away from God to false security. Israel didn't lead people to God. There's one more vine. Anybody guess? We read about it in John chapter 15. It's in contrast to those two vines, neither of which can lead anyone to the Father, that Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. The genuine vine. Yeah, interestingly, a vine produces that which is presented to a king. Produces wine. It's given to a king. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. And again, it's genuine, is the idea, as opposed to counterfeit. The two other vines in Scripture both profess to lead men to the father. Again, Psalm 80 speaks of the vine of Israel, and Revelation we looked at, it speaks of the vine of the earth. So with that, we go into verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the goodness of his land, and they have made goodly images. Just to recap again, Israel were to be this vine that brought refreshing and the knowledge of God to the world. Satan counterfeited this or countered it with the vine of the earth that began in Babylon. The purpose was to lead people away from God. And then Jesus comes as the true vine. Verse 2 goes on and says, their heart is divided. You know, they kind of, they had this, this partly wanted to do the religious stuff and keep the feasts and the festivals, but they're also given over to, to Baal pure and to this idolatrous worship. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. These things that they set up, God is saying, is all going to be destroyed. You know, they'd wish to serve God and man and Jehovah and Baal, but you can't do that. Now God is going to do in judgment what they should have done in contrition, to break down their altars and spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king because we feared not the Lord. What? then should a king do to us? In other words, what good would a king be? I think this is a really interesting statement. They say we have no king. Israel had forgotten what a godly king was like and what blessings would come from godly leaders. Eventually, Israel's leaders would declare, we have no king but Caesar. Here they are, 700 and so BC, saying we have no king, rejecting the idea. Saying what good would a king do? Well, they will eventually have a king who they will accept and they will worship the Messiah. They have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as a hemlock in the furrows of the field. You know, lip service is easy, of course, but commitment is hard. 
Hemlock is a, a bitter and poisonous plant. It springs up um, in, in a kind of a field. It ruins the field. Any animals that eat it would die as a result. And he's saying Israel's judgment was like uh, this corrupt society. You know, the, the, the judgment, the things that they were passing, the laws and so on, they were all corrupt. It was just like hemlock in a field. And just as hemlock would be harmful to animals' life, so the judgments they were passing were harmful to their society. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth-Avon. Again, we've said already that this is a, a play on the words. Beth-Avon was kind of right next to Beth-El, and they're they used kind of uh, synonymously here. Beth-Avon means house of vanity, and it's a synonym of Beth-El, house of God. And of course, Beth-El is where one of these calves has been placed. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. Without derailing our study this morning, there's a really interesting passage back in uh, the beginning of Samuel. It speaks of Eli's sons, who were these priests who were reprobates. They were ungodly. And one of them has a son, and they name that son Ichabod. His name means the glory is departed. He was named on the very day that the ark was taken captive by the Philistines. If you remember, and Eli hears the news, he falls off his chair, breaks his neck and dies and so on. And they name this baby Ichabod. And name means the glory is departed. Why? The ark had gone. What was the significance? Well, what was in the ark? The word of God, the Ten Commandments. When the word of God is taken out of any situation, be it a church, be it a family, be it a person's life, the glory will depart. And God is saying to Israel, the, the glory is departed. God's word had been taken out of the nation. His glory was going. It shall also be carried into Assyria for a present. Now this is talking about these calves that they'd worshipped and set up. These things that, that were so precious to them. They were going to be taken to Assyria. The Assyrians would come and they'd say, yeah, we've made a gold, that'll do, we'll take it. What they did with it, we don't know. Probably just melted it down and for a present for King Jerab, that's a, a title, it kind of means the great king. In fact, Adam Clark says this, that it's most likely that Paul, king of Assyria, is intended, to whom Menahem, king of Israel, appears to have given one of the golden calves to ensure his assistance. It didn't work very well because a very short time later he came back and destroyed them. Ephraim shall rec- receive shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. I mean, a number of these kings in the the closing years of Israel's um, time in the land, they were assassinated. They were very, very short reigns. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. You know, they made these high places where they could go and worship the sun, the moon, the stars. They made shrines these places. And then it says, the thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. See, I did nobody's there. It's just going to get overrun with the thorns, the thistles, and so on. And they shall say unto the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. Well, that sounds a little bit like Revelation, doesn't it? This is exactly what we read in Revelation 6.16, that in the judgment that's coming, people are actually going to say, you know, I'd rather some natural disaster happen because the threat of being taken by this invading army is terrifying. And it would have been. The Assyrians were cruel. They used to literally sew people together through their ears or their nose in the long chains of people. You couldn't escape. They didn't bother using handcuffs. Didn't need to. No, the Assyrians were very cruel. And people here, just the same kind of quote, same wording that we find in Revelation. Just as an aside, in Revelation there's 404 verses. 
in those 404 verses, there are over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So in every single verse of Revelation, there's almost two allusions to something in the Old Testament. If you want to understand Revelation, read the Old Testament, because it's all in there in code. And as you read, it all starts to make sense. You get the context of all these things and what was going on. The threat of an invading army and why it was so terrifying. O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. Again, this reference to this um, place in Benjamin where this, um, this rape and this murder had taken place back in the time of the judges. Sin from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah. Now, this is also a place later. But we'll talk about it in a second. Let me just read the rest of the verse. Uh, against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. So there they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. Now, questions as to who the children of iniquity are here could be a reference to the Philistines in this context because there was battle that took place with Jonathan, his armor bearer, and they go up against the Philistines at this place of Gibeah and God gives them victory. You see, God was able to deliver them had delivered them miraculously in times past, but only when they trusted him. You see, Gibeah had become synonymous with immoral, uh, immorality and injustice. Again, go back to the Judges reference, Judges 19. But as I said, it's that place where God had given the victory because Jonathan had trusted God. Impossible odds, but trust him. But he goes on and says, It is in my desire that I should chastise them and that the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. The idea, again, that they're like these calves that have been bound together, like you calves treading out grain or whatever else, or plowing a field is really the idea, and that they've been bound together. Abbot Barnes again says, God does not afflict willingly. Let me just read that again. God does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. That's from Lamentations 3, verse 33. Grievous then must be the cause of punishment when God not only chastens people, but so to speak longs to chasten them, when he chastens them without any let or hindrance from his mercy. Yet, so God has said, it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to naught. That's from Deuteronomy 28, verse 63. Those last few verses. And Ephraim is as a heifer that is taught and loved to tread out the corn. You know, that's how Ephraim had been. Again, Ephraim, this idiom for the northern kingdom, Israel, and so on, because it's one of the largest uh, areas geographically in the northern kingdom. And for a cow, typically, it would be a great job to, to go and tread out the corn because they won't be muzzled. They could just walk around and, and crush the corn under their feet and they could eat it as they go. And it's a, I mean, my, my, my type of job, really. Love that job. But it goes on, it says, uh, it says, but, and really probably a better way to translate it would be so, I passed over upon their fair neck. In other words, I put a yoke upon their neck and I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clothes. It's putting the northern and the southern kingdom next to each other. Ephraim and Judah, or Judah, sorry, uh, and Jacob, are the two, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom here. And the idea is that they're, they're two cows, and now they had this freedom, but now that they are bound together, and they're walking in the same path, the same direction, into iniquity and so on. And that they're, they're going over this hard ground. You know, plowing a field is not easy. You know, you'd have to put these big yokes around the, the cow's neck, and it would have the plow attached to the back of it, and you could get them to walk side by side, and it would be digging up the hard ground. 
This is what God is saying. Yeah, they had it easy. It was wonderful for them. But now that's all going to change. They abandoned that relatively easy task of threshing and insisted on being yoked to sin. So the Lord was going to place a different yoke on Israel's neck and force her to engage in the arduous work of plowing. So to yourselves in righteousness, that same kind of agricultural theme carries on. God just pleads at this point, just pleading with them, so to yourself in righteousness, reap in mercy. It's a really simple spiritual law. What you sow, you will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. God says to them, in the midst of this threat of judgment that's coming, announcement that judgment is coming, God still pleads with them and says, sow to yourself in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou did trust in thy way and the multitude of thy mighty man. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. A shaman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. Now we're not given the details of this account, but clearly it's something Hosea was aware of, the people would have been aware of. It speaks of some battle that had taken place. And it gives us this analogy. The last verse of this morning. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. That's how sudden judgment is coming. It's really scary when you look at the opportunities the nation had to repent. But how they loved the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those warnings are all there for us. But how gracious God is in giving us opportunity after opportunity to seek him. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these lessons. And Lord, it's, it's heavy. And yet, Lord, in this we see the father heart of our God who doesn't want his children to run off into the things of the world. And if necessary, Lord, you will strip us of all those things that we think are comforts to us so that we are left with nothing that we may cry out to you. Oh, but Lord, we pray that we be of those that seek wisdom, that Lord sow in righteousness and that reap that which is blessing. Father, give us hearts for you. Oh, and while we pray for this nation too, because Lord, we recognize that all those things that you were judging Israel for, we see going on in this nation. And yes, Lord, we recognize the Jews had a great light. They had a great witness. They knew God. But Lord, this nation has had great preachers and teachers through the centuries. Oh Lord, how guilty is this nation of turning its back on you. So we pray for your mercy on this nation also. In the light of these things, you are a God who will not just turn idly away from iniquity. We pray for these things, Lord. Just show us how we should respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.